Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Richmond. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Nice to see you here. And um, thanks for coming on the uh, the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, where, where are you so people know? So I'm in Australia in a very small coastal town called Marimbula. And it's halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. It's very beautiful, about 5,000 people. Oh, wow. Gosh, that is, that is small. <laughs> yes, oh. very small. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, look, we, we met um, on, on social media. Um, I think it was LinkedIn, actually. It and was. exchanged a few, a few messages. And then we had a, a chat the other week, um, which, was, which was great. So, there's some really exciting work you're doing at the moment, which, which we'll get into. Um, but, but maybe you could just give a little, a little introduction um, about who you are. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, I live in Marimbula and really value the lifestyle here. So you'll find me every day, including today at the beach with my Portuguese water dog called Florence. She's asleep just next to me now, hopefully doesn't interrupt us. Um, so I really value lifestyle. And I think after everything I've been through, that's very important to me to, you know, live that kind of life where I can enjoy hobbies, the beach, time with family and friends and work that gives me a lot of purpose. Um, so I grew up in this area, but moved away and worked in the Air Force for 10 years as an officer, um, travelled the world and then decided to settle back here. Wow. Okay. So that's uh, what, what took you into the Air Force? I love planes. <laughs> But actually, it was my sister joined the army, and I started to really have my eyes open to the wonderful opportunities, especially with leadership. So I went through officer training, um, and they supported me during my bachelor's degree and got absolutely incredible leadership training for four months. Um, and then at age 25, I was managing 200 people in a fighter jet squadron. And I just think, where else do you get those kind of opportunities um, supported in an amazing organisation? Um, like that so and I just love being around aircraft especially fighter jets so it was a lot of fun yeah that's exciting now we we are that's a a shared passion that we have because I always wanted to be a, a fast jet pilot um, and, um, and and sort of went through the, the the beginnings of the process only to be told that I could fly helicopters not that I'd been accepted for it but that was just what they would offer me bearing my, my abilities with joysticks and things and I was like nah it's got to be fast jets, so that, that sort of went out the window. But but um, so what what were the fast jets? Let's be really geeky. <laughs> FA eighteen Classic Hornet. So the JSF hadn't come in yet, um, and I actually got to go for a flight in one for one hour, and we dropped three five hundred pound bombs on a training range um, in the north of Australia, and I got to have a fly. I did a barrel roll and a loop. And we went supersonic. So I like to say it's the best hour of my life because it was. Like, I still oh. just go, what? I mean, you get paid to do this job. And I never knew I'd get in a, in a fighter jet. But the absolute highlight of my career. And I always think, you know, who else can top that as a farewell gift? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Now, that, that's amazing. How did you feel sort of getting strapped in? Oh, amazing. But, you know, it's all very exciting until they say, oh, you know, when you're putting on the suit if there's like a little gap for where your knees are and if that slides across because of the g-force it can actually dislocate your entire knee so i was like oh this is actually really serious like you go into it all you know very excited take the photos and then when they start to run you through all these secure like safety protocols it's like oh actually this is very serious and it's you know it's a dangerous job if something goes wrong it's unlikely um, but, you know, that I got up to eight Gs, uh, which is really high, and I started to get quite dizzy. So that's a lot for the human body. Yeah, it is. And I, and I guess you, you hadn't done much preparation for that. No, but interestingly, females can handle the G-force better than males because of our body type. So we can actually handle that pressure a little bit better. So no, no preparation, but full of, you know, adrenaline rush and a lot of excitement. It was amazing. Yeah, wow, wow. Do you, do you know why it is that, that women can handle Gs better, just out of interest? Um, from memory, I believe it's just, you know, how we sort of store fat in general more so around the waist, and that is where most of the pressure was felt. So just because, you know, we usually have those sort of hips and that shape, we can actually handle it a bit better. 
Yeah. Oh, cool. That's really interesting. All right. So you say that was your that was your farewell gift, was it? <laughs> From yeah, my my time in the fighter jet squadrons. It was. Yeah. They took me up. So it was a special time. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. So so when you finished in the Air Force, what what happened then? Mm-hmm. So I didn't choose to finish. Uh, unfortunately, I was preparing for a deployment to the Middle East. So I'd been selected for a six-month role in um, Dubai, like UAE and Afghanistan. And I was so looking forward to it because it's the reason I joined, was to serve overseas at that tactical level. And I underwent a fairly routine medical procedure and had a very rare reaction. And when I think about it, I don't so much think it was the procedure. I think that was like the match that lit the spark because I was at that time working seven days a week on average, traveling domestically and internationally. I had no control over the food consumption because I was always at events. Um, So I think my immune system was really low. I was on the cusp of burnout. So when I underwent that procedure, my body just went, I've had enough. Um, And so what happened was I woke up the next day after the procedure and had facial paralysis on the whole right side of my face. So they said to me, look, you've either had a stroke or you have a brain tumour. And that was very scary because I was like, oh, no, it's just, you know, I had a lot of pain in my teeth. So I just thought it was, that's that's what it was. I was like, oh, no, it's my tooth. (laughs) Um, And they said, look, you need to get into a wheelchair. And I was very confused because I just didn't really understand the severity of what was happening. Um, And so, yeah, it looked like I'd had a stroke. And I did recover from the bells pretty fast. It was only a couple of weeks till my face came back. But then the pain kicked in. So because of that, and I was prescribed medications from the doctors, I wasn't then able to deploy. So then I was no longer fit for military service because the whole point of military service is to always be available to go to war and deploy overseas. So unfortunately, as much as I pushed, as much as I tried, um, it was no longer the right fit for me. So it was, it was really hard to accept that. And I probably pushed too hard and that came at a cost of my rehabilitation and my health. Because, you know, I'd worked so hard for that career and I really loved what I was doing. Yeah. So when you say you, you were pushing then, you, you were pushing to, to stay in, in the military and to keep going with that career. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, they sort of said to me, if you don't come back to work full time, you're going to be kicked out. So, of course, I went, no, I'm not ready. So I went back full time. But I had, you know, pain, really high levels I was taking Endone and they said to me, you know, just take it when you get to work because you're not supposed to drive on Endone. So they were really pushing me to show up and, you know, tick the box and, you know, she's working. But I couldn't function properly. I was on 22 medications at one point and, you know, showing up to work in that kind of state um, is just not very safe. And so I was using all my energy to get to work, show up, tick that box, and then I'd go home and crash because I had no energy for anything else like exercise or socialising or hobbies. So I absolutely pushed way too hard because my career was important to me and I didn't want to, you know, lose my job, lose my income, lose where I was living. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, upon in hindsight and upon reflection, I do wish that I'd sort of cut ties early and just accept it. Um, so, yeah, I think it set me back quite a bit in terms of rehabilitation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you say kind of looking back and, and you know, maybe you've done something different. But, but ultimately, you did what you thought was right at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was just following the guidance of the experts, of those health practitioners. I was under a neurologist um, and a pain specialist and a psychologist and a physiotherapist. So I went and established that team, uh, went to a pain clinic. So I was getting the advice off them and I trusted in them that this was the way forward. Um, so I took the medications and I did what they said. But... Unfortunately, that came with a whole raft of side effects and my pain was still, you know, high. Yeah. And, and how long was this going on for? This, this, you know, taking the medication, trying, you know, getting into work, coming home, crashing? Mm, so I had about six months off in 2015, which is very generous, but because that's when everything sort of snowballed and I became extremely unwell because... I went from not having pain to having like nine out of 10 pain. So it was such a shock to me. Um, But yeah, 2015, 2016 and 2017. So it was quite some time that I pushed to, you know, keep my job. 
and then I left the military in February 2018. Right. Okay. So there was a good sort of what was that three years, three years. of from from when you had the procedure um, to to then leaving. And what I mean, what was the nature of the pain? Where where were you experiencing it? What was it like for you? Yeah. So it was in the area where the Bell's palsy was. So. It was all over my face. So in my ear, I thought, oh, I've got an ear infection because it felt like a knife in my ear. So I went to get checked out for an ear infection. Like, there's nothing there. So it was right in the ear. And then it was in the teeth um, because my smile had drooped. And, you know, when I smiled, you couldn't see the front tooth on that right side. So when it picked up, it would be in the teeth. So it's really difficult to eat and drink. Um, it came across at its worst all the way to the nose and under the eye and the eye would actually start to close. So if it was really high and I was stressed, you know, and being triggered, the eye would actually close and it would twitch. So it was very much all within the face and yeah. the head, like also the neck, um, like the back of the neck, like the hairline. And I used to say it feels like someone got a plank of wood and hit me over the back of the head never happened but it's the only way I can describe the aching throbbing and then the other thing I'd get and I still do get sometimes is the very top of my head I'll be walking along you know in the supermarket it feels like someone's stabbing me with a knife and it lasts about 10 seconds which just comes out of nowhere so it's quite a sharp pain at times um but yeah that sort of throbbing aching sensation and, and you were still getting those feelings despite the the medication yeah, yes, um, because interestingly, when I stopped all the meds, nothing changed with my pain, which is also horrifying because <laughs> yeah. it's like I think they definitely helped initially and when I think back, the biggest challenge is remembering being pain-free because before that I'd never had that type of pain and then having it every day, all day, it's such a shock. So I do think for a, a short period, maybe a couple months, it's you know hard to know, that they definitely helped bring it down to like a four or five out of 10, um, but not as a long-term solution yet, yeah, because when I came off them, I was like, there's no change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when did you come off them? So 2018, I did a pain program, a one month intensive. It's the country's best. And it's the only pain program that, well, they say force, but you know, they require you to come off your meds. So that's one of the conditions and they guide you through that. Um, I'd come off a few of them before then because I wanted to, but they sort of helped me get off the last ones, especially the opioids. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a massive challenge, isn't it? Um, and, and some people, actually, increasingly, the people I talk to want to do that. That's one of their, their goals, if you want to call it that. Um, but um, but they don't, people don't know how. And the yeah. advice seems to be really sketchy you know you're lucky if you find someone who can you know help you and guide you other than just sort of a, a some vague instructions what how, how did they help you i think because it was a new environment it was with a group of people we were all going through it together and then they gave us specific guidance on you know how the dosage and the type of meds and how to come off them but i will admit i had full withdrawals you know like that growing pain type aches during the night, sweating, feeling nauseous, um, very unwell. But I think because I had that support and that guidance, um, a lot of it I found myself, I had come off one earlier and I read a Harvard report that you can come off medications using liquid. So when you think of a pill, like it's pretty hard to cut. Like a lot of them you can only cut into quarters before they start to break up. Yeah. So I found this... Um, report and I gave it to my GP and I said I want to come off this particular medication and I want to do it using liquid she's like I've never heard of this so so she ordered it and so what I did was I was on 20 mil milligrams from memory so I came down like one mil per week with this liquid so it was really slow and I had zero withdrawals and I was like how does everybody not know about this like, how, how does my GP not know about this? This is an amazing way to not have any side effects because when you have the side effects, you kind of go, oh, I must need it. Like, you know, there's a chemical imbalance or there's something wrong with my body. Like, I must need this medication. It's just your nervous system reacting because it's so strong. But, yeah, the liquid 
way of coming off them and withdrawing is quite fascinating. So I'm really glad I found that myself and did that because that really helped with one particular medication. Yeah, and it, and it seems that one of the key aspects there is the fact that you can really control how much you're you're reducing, as you said, to to the mill. Yes, yes. Which which you just couldn't really do with with anything else. It, it's it's much more refined, isn't it? It is. Yes. And I suppose the other thing there that's notable is the fact that your GP was open to that. Yeah, and that can be challenging. I do have an integrative, so a holistic GP, but I feel, and I had an appointment yesterday with someone else, and I feel this sort of tension in my chest because I'm like, I'm going to have to, you know, prove this. You know, it's telehealth, but somehow I'm going to have to prove that I need a referral to a specialist. It's this constant need to be seen and, you know, really believe for what you're going through and worthy of further investigation where appropriate. Um, so, yes, very lucky to have a good GP, um, but finding the right people takes time. Yeah. I mean, you've hit on a, um, a big point there, haven't you? This this need to to prove that, that you have pain, that you're suffering um, adequately for someone to, to sort of take, take notice. Is that something that you've that you felt and maybe still feel that you have to do? Yes, absolutely. And I think because it's invisible, it's really hard to prove. You know, all the scans came back normal, um, but I got the diagnosis of neuralgia, the type of nerve pain. So it was good to have, you know, it's not all in my head. There is something there, but I wasn't then equipped with how to deal with it. Um, And often it's just not taken seriously. So, you know, this need to prove that it says really challenging particularly for women there's a lot of studies that women aren't taken seriously for their pain but I think both genders you know when it comes to pain because some days you can be really well and people see that they don't see you in bed on endone and I feel like maybe we need to share that because I hid all of that I didn't want to be judged I didn't want to miss out on opportunities and let people down so I hid all of that about myself and would only present as my best self um, when I went to, you know, and did things. And so people would say, you know, you're sure you've got pain? I saw that you were in Sydney the other day. And it's like, well, I went to Sydney, but for four days afterwards I had to recover because I've got a lot of fatigue and my pain flared up, but I don't share that with people. So it's this constant judgment and that societal and this stigma that if you can't see it, it's not real. And I think when you look at, you know, disabled car spots or disabled toilets, it's the wheelchair sign. So, so often we're like, well, where's your wheelchair? Where's your walking stick? You know, where's your heat pack on your head? Like for me and, you know, my face. And they say 80% of disabilities are invisible. So there's a real opportunity here to educate people that, you know, you might look fine, but, you know, what's going on internally, you can't see and you don't see those hard moments when you're at home. Yeah. It must, it must feel for a lot of people like you just can't win, you know, either way. Um, because if you if you kind of show too much or, or in terms of, you know, behaviours and what you're saying, you, you know, people tell me they don't want to share too much because people have got bored of hearing about their pain, that sort of thing. Um, and then the other side, if you're not showing something, then people just assume that you're fine. Um, and, and then uh, kind of taking the view that, well, you should be doing this, that and the other, because essentially you're, you're fine. And that's even, fam- you know, close family members. Yes. And they're the hardest ones because you just assume that they'll be there and they'll love you and empathize with you no matter what. But I think that's particularly hard. Um, family, friends, health practitioners, because you've got to be really, really vulnerable to go out and ask for help and share some of these challenges. And when there is that lack of empathy or there's judgment or there's, you know, those comments that, you know, you did this the other day, like you must be fine. Um, It's quite heartbreaking actually. And it makes the journey of healing and having a good quality of life take longer. Yeah, yeah. You know, the people around us are so important. But you you, you described something interesting there, Um, the, the journey of healing. Now healing means different things to different people if you talk to a you know a biologist or scientist they'll go oh well that are the stages of healing and inflammation and etc but then then healing to other people means something completely different what what does it mean to you 
I mean, initially it was all, I want a cure, I want to stop the pain. And then it moved to acceptance of this is something I'm going to have to manage. And now for me, healing is not a end point. It is, I have a good quality of life and pain or health conditions and challenges don't rule my life and rule me. I control them, they're in the background. And I had this physio that described it to me as, it's like asthma. It's just something you've got to live with. You know, many people have asthma or conditions like it. It doesn't rule my whole life. It doesn't control what I can and can't do. I'm in control and I'm empowered to know what to do and how to move forward. And it is something I need to manage. Um, and I'm not so angry at it anymore. Like I'm not angry at the pain going, oh, you know, that victim mentality. It's more like, how can I work with it? How can I use it as a signal to know that I'm not sleeping enough or I'm not exercising or I'm not eating the right diet. And it, in a way, it's a gift um, because it is that sort of barometer to go, oh, you're not in balance. So I sort of think that's that's how I'm trying to see it now. But I also see healing as it's always continuing. I'm always trying new things. I did sound bathing and the Wim Hof method last week. So I'm always open to trying new things that can improve not specifically pain, but just my overall um, health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a big move, though, isn't it? That's a big move from the the initial reactions that that you had and and most people have, isn't it? At the beginning of, of kind of expecting things to to get better, um, because often things do get better. You know, previously we've done something and it does get better um so it's a it's a well-trodden route but then it doesn't work out and and kind of how long is it not working out as in you know you expect to get better then you try something and it doesn't and it doesn't and it doesn't and then there's this kind of switch into oh, right okay well i've got to reevaluate this that's really tricky stuff for people it is you've got all these other pressures like financially you might have lost your job or not work as much as you can like they're all real pressures and major stresses like moving i had to move back in with my mum because you know i couldn't work so i had no income and i mean that's really hard to do as an adult in their 30s it was quite embarrassing and then i was just really lost with what do i do next what can i do what can't i do um so there's so many factors to it that are different for everyone but it's never just about the pain, which, to be honest, is enough because <laughs> it's a really big challenge. But you throw all these other things in, you know, that judgment and the stigma and the comments and this battle with finding practitioners that take a holistic view, don't operate in silos, that really, like, look at you as a person and what you need and where you're at. Um, it's very challenging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on some major themes there. Um, you know, that, that feeling of shame um and and what that is like inside and the the, the i mean if you look at the the biology of that and the stress that creates and the other things that you mentioned and we can think of you know chronic stress as being chronic inf you know inflammatory and how that then impacts on on how you're feeling and the pain and such like um the, these are the very real challenges that, that people have to have to face so, I mean, what, the, the question on the tip of my tongue is, how did you do it? <laughs> ah, there's no one answer. There's no one treatment or, you know, self-care routine that fixed it. It was looking at what works for me. What are my strengths? What do I like doing? What am I likely to continue to do? And then shifting it as I go. So for me, it's always doing probably three or four things. Um, Sleep's a really big one, a good diet, stress management. It's one of my big triggers. And then just having some type of purpose. So when I went through that really bad chapter we spoke about, those three years, I studied my fourth degree. And people would say to me, that's so stressful. You know, why would you throw that into this mix? And I said to them, that's the only way I got through it because I love studying. To me, it's fun. I don't get stressed by studying. It gave me hope. It gave me this sense of purpose and achievement and it absolutely was a big help for me personally for getting through that and then moving to those next chapters. Um, but I was always really open to trying things, researching and taking ownership of me, um, like my health and saying no and changing doctors or specialists if they didn't meet my needs. So there's many, many factors. <laughs> yeah. 
but you're showing a real flexibility there and, and an openness um which which not everyone has I mean, I think it's something that people do improve on once they understand how things work a little bit. But um, but there's a lot of work you're talking about there, which is on yourself, isn't it? You've got to work. You've got to understand yourself and your own beliefs and and what you're thinking and be open to updating them. And it's time consuming, and it's also you know it's your money. Like I did a ten day silent meditation retreat. It was fantastic, but of course that's you know, something that I had to organize and pay for. And that's what's worked the most. The things that I've gone out and explored, um, equine therapy, art therapy, I feel like I've done it all, <laughs> just about. Um, but I was always like, you know, what what are the options? I'm not going to give up because I think initially I was like, okay, whatever they tell me to do, I'll do. And then I went, hang on a minute, I'm not getting better. Is this really the long-term plan? Like me popping all these meds, having all these side effects. You know, I put on 20 kilos. I was extremely forgetful, couldn't finish a sentence. Whole raft of things. So that's when I really took ownership. And I wouldn't say I accepted it. Like for a long time, I was like, oh, maybe it'll improve. That's a really hard one. Um, But yeah, just being proactive and trying different things that I was interested in to help me on that path. But it is time and you've got to be ready for it. I think, you know, doing something when you're not open to it because someone said you should, you're not going to get the most benefits out of it. You do have to be open and curious and ready to try something. Yeah. Yeah. So you're highlighting this this real individualized journey of, of discovery, really, and then being able to, to sort of toggle through different options at different times because not the same thing's going to work each time and and having it's like having your own sort of toolbox isn't it of 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 different practices strategies and skills that that you can then you know right i'm feeling this way right i'm going to do this Mm, okay maybe okay well i'll try that right okay that that's working for me now and and having that kind of with you all the time um because it's always a moment basis and with support so I did like, and I don't see him anymore, but I did have a very good pain specialist and I've had a lot of um, psychology, like therapy, CBT has been quite helpful, but the most helpful has been EMDR for, you know, past trauma. You know, some family members to sort of guide me through that because you need that as well. It's hard going through it all on your own. So it's very much been a team effort, but that team changes with time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if here's here's a question then. If you were to uh, design the perfect um, pain, let's say pain therapist. Let's just use that word. Some people might not like that, but pain therapist. What what would be the ideal characteristics? Do you think? For me, like empathy is a really big one. Um, not necessarily like lived or living experience but at least sitting with those uncomfortable feelings and letting someone express their challenges without judgment um, and helping, you know, those feelings of shame. So a very good listener. Um, I really like practitioners that also have a sense of humour because all this stuff is very serious. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we're talking about the perfect person, right? So (laughs) sense of humour, someone that you just feel comfortable with and, you know, if you're going to cry they get you a tissue so I went through through a few a few therapists and you know you cry often you're talking about major challenges and they never offered me a tissue and I was like I don't think I'm going to come back because that's such a basic kind of gesture to go oh I can see you're upset like you need to wipe your eyes so it's little things like that that I look for to go do they actually care about me because I need them to genuinely care they're not going to have all the answers no one does but they're going to be able to sit with me through those challenges and we work with them together. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? You know, cause we do want to be cared for, you know, it's, it's so human. And, and I know that in some um, forms of therapy, the, they don't offer tissues because they, it's the idea is that if you do that, you're stemming the flow of what should be sort of flowing out. And, you know, you sort of think, okay, well, yeah, I, I sort of get that. But I think you have to take it on an individual basis. And I think that if you're sitting there as the clinician feeling really like, you, you know, you're reaching out to offer the tissues and then you kind of go, mm, no, maybe not. You know, that you're, you're, 
just go with just just be human with that that person and um you know, I was, it becomes I was practical too because they're pouring down your face. You're like, oh, this is a real issue. Like, because it it's always yeah, the first it's session. Not, and... You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, messy, isn't it? It's really messy, which, which is fine. Um, but um, I was doing some teaching not long ago with some some folk, you know, really sort of a bit stuck in the biomedical model, and and sort of just trying to talk about being being human you know, your, your way of being with people is so, so important when, when they're suffering. And and I was trying to sort of think of an example of that. And I just said, well, look, just, just treat them like your loved ones. Mm. Yes. Now, I know, again, some therapists might have issue with that because of boundaries and all that kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, it's just my thoughts on it. But what, what do you think? Absolutely. It's those basic human needs. And I think you can't get anywhere without validating someone's experience, without judging it, without letting them think it's all in their head or it's because they're too stressed or it's their mental health conditions. Those play a role and they're definitely factors, but to actually go there and go, this pain is real. The injury that you went through, the paralysis, it is all real and it's really hard and it's, you know, it's also unfair um, for, you know, and that is so helpful to hear that because you go, oh, okay, like I can relax now. It, it's not me. It's not that I'm not a strong person. I actually am. Um, and you feel empowered and then you kind of become curious and you have an open mind to try different things. But I think that's at the very core before you move into anything else. And I think that's what's often missing yeah. is that validation because the opposite is so common. And is it, isn't it amazing in a way how people enduring such difficulty as as you know so well on a on a moment to moment basis have have this sort of feeling that maybe they're weak because they can't get to work or they can't look after their kids or whatever where in fact you know they're demonstrating immense strength it's completely the opposite you know when you sit at the other side of the table and you hear the stories you're like oh my god you know and and you've even got here a feeling like that you know wow yeah, and I think sometimes that still happens to me. I think, well, why am I not trying hard enough? What have I done wrong to not be cured or not fully healed? Because so often I read about quick fixes and, you know, that it's, yeah, there's a cure. And I'm like, well, haven't I tried everything? Haven't I put like a lot of effort into this? So that's quite upsetting. And then it makes me doubt, am I weak? Am I not doing the right things? And that's obviously a slippery slope and I'm aware of it, but it still happens eight years after the injury. Yeah, and you, and you're aware, so you know, and and perhaps can catch it, um, you know, more successfully sometimes than others. You know, we all get caught in, up in stuff, don't we? Um, but but some people who who can't are constant, might maybe telling themselves that over and over and over, and then they see, you know, there's there's books and there's courses promising in X number of days or months um, you're going to be healed or cured. You see on websites, don't you? Look, clinics will cure your pain. Well, yes. cure, I mean, that's a really strong word, isn't it? Yeah, I don't like that word because even you're saying it now, I feel uncomfortable. I'm like, is there anyone that's 100% cured? Because I've loved... And it would be a strange reaction to not want to look for a cure when this happens, to just accept and go, oh, okay, I'll always be in pain. As humans, we're always looking at ways to solve things. So... It is, it is really dangerous, that narrative, um, and that's the challenge with pain, is that it's so unique, and it can take months or even years, in my case, and I had access to the best pain clinic in the country, the best specialist in the country, pain psychologist. You know, I had all of that in Sydney, and it still took me this long, and I really worked hard at it, so I think that's the really key message, is that it does take time. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you, um, it's a natural question, isn't it? You know, people want to, well, how long is this going to take? When, when do you think I'm going to be better? Um, and um, you, you just can't answer that question with accuracy. And I think most people in the cold light of day realise that, um, but they want something to hold on to. Um, do, you, do you think there are some positive messages that can be given with that sort of question? I think it's so hard with that, and I'm sure I ask that many times with my practitioners. Um, but I do have a friend with MS, and he said, 
after the initial diagnosis and those challenging years of acceptance and adjustment, what happened was the positives in his life outweighed the negatives. So for so long, it was very negative. It was all doom and gloom. And then that switched. And that happened for me too. And the whole mindset mindset shifted. And of course, you know, there's still challenges, there's still stress, there's still an occasional flare up, but they're more in the background and they're a smaller part of my life. So that that's an exciting moment, but of course that's different for everyone. And I think for me, when it was really challenging, I'd go day by day and at its worst, I'd be like, okay, hour by hour. And a psychologist said to me to think of it like rehabilitation. If I'd broken my leg, I wouldn't be angry at myself that a week later I'm not back at the gym running. Be kind and gentle to myself and treat myself like I'm in rehabilitation, which takes time, and set small goals. And the goals back then were go for a walk, clean my teeth, eat food, like very basic. And they're so different to now, but that's the rehabilitation stages. So starting small, because little little changes equal big changes with time yeah i mean again you've hit on something that that comes up frequently you know around people's expectations and and where they're they're at um because of course the only moment you need to actually handle is this one and if there's pain in this moment then you can toggle through your options because there's nothing you can do about the pain because it's already there it's happening so but, but how can I create the conditions now to feel better? Hopefully very soon. Um, but sometimes it takes a while because payday isn't every day. And I think some people, if, if it doesn't immediately uh, make them feel like 80, 90, 100% better, well, that doesn't work. And sort of seeing it that way, this, this you mentioned quick fix earlier. There's so many quick fixes in inverted commas out there for, for all sorts of things. But, but with, the, with our health and well-being and wellness and pain, there is no quick fix. It's just a continuous journey. And as you said, you know, maybe you could call it a journey of healing. Maybe that resonates with. And with a little bumpy along the way. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And and you know, often you you know you ask people, well, how do you see recovery? What does what does it look like if you were to draw a line? And a lot of people still sort of draw. They expect this this straight line. It's blended, obviously, with hope because everyone would love it that way. Yes. But that's a preference, not a reality. The reality is it's very bumpy. Absolutely. But those bumpy times are very upsetting because, well, for me in particular, that catastrophic thinking of, oh, well, I'm back to how I was. I find it hard. I've gotten better, but I find it really difficult to say, oh, no, I've actually improved. So I've had to write it down and then reflect on it. So in those challenging moments, I can go, but look at all these things I've achieved, you know, back at the gym or what, you know, the degree, whatever it is, because when your mind gets into that state, you can't remember and it is all doom and gloom. So that's like a little trick that I've used because I just go into this, I'm always in pain, like it's never going to get better. I've made no progress. I've spent all this money, all this time, but it's not true. It's just in that moment, it feels true. So it, but it's particularly hard. Those, they feel like setbacks, um, but they just are that journey. Yeah, and we, we use terms like that, don't we? You know, oh, I've gone back. Uh, I've gone back to square one. And, of course, you can't go back in time. You can't go... And, and you can't go back to what, anything that you were in the past. It's it's impossible. Um, but these these bumps in the road, and sometimes they're, they're significant. You know, some people get to the position of, of being able to say, okay, well, what can, I, what can I learn from that? Which of my skills and practices really helped with, with that? Because I might encounter something like this in the future. So if I'm honing those skills and then working on them in between, which usually most of those are the skill, sort of skills of being well anyway, so it might be breathing or mindfulness or, or movement or, or whatever. So they're things that you use day to day anyway. They're not specific to pain. Um, they just get you into a better state. Um, and then if something happens down the line, ah, right, okay, I can do this and I might do it a little better this time. Absolutely. So, and you take more control that way. So I've got a friend that always says to me, oh, I knew that flare-up was coming. Like I knew in the days before. I was like, how? Like you could just tell Um, because we're, you know, so close. We've known each other for years. But there's little patterns and things I do and the tone in like text messages or conversation. It's like, oh, a flare-up's imminent. (laughs) So 
for someone else to say that, I've started to also go, hang on a minute, what are those things where I can kind of feel like it's it's going to happen um, yeah. to actually minimise the time the flare-up happens. So it's not weeks, it's not days, it's hours, which is yeah. fantastic because it used to be weeks. The worst thing about flare-ups is when you're doing everything right and you still get one. So you, you're doing your meditation, your exercise and your food and your sleep and then it just hits you and it's like, hang on a minute, there weren't any signs, that's really hard. They don't happen that often, but that's particularly hard because there's no reason for it um, that can be found. Well, that's it. And and it's this assumption that because there's nothing I can think of that caused that flare-up, therefore there isn't a good reason. But biologically, it's obviously, and experientially, it it is happening. So there's things, obviously, we don't have access to in our body. There's no readout or anything like that. Um, and and I think this is a really important point because, again, some people are, are sort of put off with their practices because they said, yeah, but I did all that stuff and I still had a flare-up. And yeah. and I was thinking the other day of, of you know, I'm always trying to think of ways of, of dis- helping people to kind of stay on the path. And, um, and, and I don't know, maybe this will resonate. You can, you can tell me what you think. Um, I'm, I'm not religious, but I was thinking about prayer. And I was thinking about the fact that the people who are religious will pray and they'll pray once, twice, three, four, five times a day. And they will do that whether they have a, a good day or a bad day. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to pray. They won't, they won't stop. I suppose in a way it's a bit like cleaning your teeth. You know, you could clean your teeth. And then later on in the day, someone goes, oh, your breath smells. You're not going to stop cleaning your teeth because of that, are you? No. So I was just wondering if that sort of analogy works, because you can indeed be doing all the right things. You could be looking after yourself, eating well, going to the gym, da da da, da all this sort of stuff, and still get a cold, or, or someone still says something you don't like, or you can still sprain your ankle or whatever. So it seems to me that this is... This is just what happens in life. But if we can bring that sort of acceptance of this is what happens in life into, well, this is what happens when also you're in pain because the two are not separate, then maybe that will help people to stay on the path. Absolutely. And building those habits is so important. Um, And it takes an average, what is it, 66 days. Atomic Habits such a great book, Mm. but 66 days to implement. That's a long time. You know, we want it to happen in a week. And some habits for me, when I start them, they just sort of fall into place. But other ones are a bit tricky. Um, one I've been working on the moment is like a nice morning routine, so no looking at the phone. So meditation for 10 minutes, journaling, and then read some type of book for uh, 20 pages. Then I can look at my phone and then I get up and start the day. But that has had a profound impact on my stress and anxiety for pretty much the entire day. So I don't really feel like irritated by things until much later because it's just setting me up for the day. And when I don't do it, I really notice the difference. Mm. So, yeah, it's just become a habit now. So I've put the book next to the bed. I've got the journal there. I put the phone like somewhere else. I've got an alarm clock. So creating that environment, those cues um, to to make it easy because it is hard to, you know, implement some of these new habits. But just trying to make it as easy as possible and get to those 66 days, essentially. And then it just becomes, like you said, cleaning your teeth. It's just what you do. Yeah. You don't feel like you have to do it. It's just part of your your life. Yeah, I, I often call it, a, this is your practice. Mm-hmm. So your your life is, you know, you practice different. If you're a writer, you have a practice of writing. You do it every day. If you're a musician, you play music every day. If you want to be well, you have a practice of wellness every day. And and obviously your, your habits then are are the steps that you you take there is something that you might have missed out though on that morning that morning <laughs> routine <laughs> oh coffee oh i've just cut out coffee ah right okay i wasn't sure i do, but, so. I do like <laughs> it but it makes me anxious so i'm like is it it's become a habit right like it was a nice ritual but i actually don't really like it that much and it was giving me anxiety so i've just switched to tea and i feel better for it but yeah, in some some ways I miss that ritual. You know, the smell of coffee out of the machine. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that interesting though that you kind of had this this realization? That I don't I don't really I don't really like the taste. Maybe the smell, maybe the aroma, the business of getting it already you like. 
the actual taste and then obviously if you if it's sort of winding you up then that, that's not great um maybe you could make coffee for someone else and enjoy oh, the smell like and it. preference <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly you can unwind some of those habits really quickly that only took me a week and I, I haven't touched coffee i'm like oh that was easy i thought that was going to be a really difficult one to break but also talking about these habits and some of the examples we've discussed they're not specific to chronic pain that's what I find fascinating when we're looking at, you know, ways to help people with pain and myself, they actually help all aspects of life. They're not pain specific, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's, that's a massive point because I, I would say that the, the vast majority of things I do with people have, are not pain specific at all. Yes. Because actually, I mean, this is, this is a kind of, I draw a lot from Buddhist philosophy, but, but pain is made up of non-pain elements. So if you're addressing all those non-pain elements, effectively you're addressing pain, but indirectly, um, which means also you're you're removing the focus from that because you're talking about focusing on what you want rather than what you don't want. How can I be more active? How can I feel more energy? How can I sleep better? How can I move better? How can I connect with people better? Da, 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 da. Um, which are all far more interesting things because essentially you're using stuff that you that you like to do or love to do or brings you joy in order to live your life. So you're focusing on living life rather than trying to get rid of pain. Yes, so important. Does that does that kind of way of be that sort of way of doing things resonate? Absolutely. The more you focus on pain, the worse it gets and it starts to become all consuming because you're looking for the answer and you're looking for the cure and it just yeah, I think putting time limits on that you know, what, that exploration and that research is also important, like setting those boundaries to go, yeah, that's, you know, I do want to look into it, but I'm going to schedule half an hour. I don't need to spend six hours because you then go on this spiral and you start to feel a bit depressed because you're like, oh, you know, no one else has got at my age. Like you start comparing to others and all those challenges. So, yeah, really powerful to acknowledge that it's absolutely real and it's worthy of attention, but setting clear boundaries on that it doesn't become all-consuming. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because you could you could so easily go kind of over the tipping point. Yes. Um, and spiral into the the internet and and all the things that are are out there and and, and stories and, and whatnot. So, wow. Okay. So look, you you've had this experience now for for some years, and um, it seems that part of your purpose that's emerged from that now is to is to help others. Yes, absolutely. I think when I reflect on those experiences, there's so many gaps, but more importantly, opportunities to, to help others. So so tell me a bit more about what you're up to. So I'm building Jaspen, which is a community platform for people with chronic pain. And I was recently selected for a Churchill Fellowship. So there was 84 Australians across a whole range of topics. And essentially, I'll be traveling the world for eight weeks, sponsored, um, going to the US, Finland, the UK, can't wait to meet you, and the Netherlands to look at the world's best community platforms, community support mechanisms, treatments, a whole range of things, specifically for veterans. So for this research, I want to focus on veterans because they have the highest rates of chronic pain out of any group. It's an average of 40%. So in Australia, that's 250,000 veterans. So it's a huge number and it's such an urgent need to provide care um, and this sort of community model. So not everyone's ready for a program or therapy or another treatment, but everyone deserves support and connection. And I believe in peer-led healthcare. So connecting with others with that living experience, because that's what you when you really learn and looking at that Alcoholics Anonymous model where they get a sponsor and they're very vulnerable and it's a very safe space. So looking at how that runs is something that's very interesting to me. But because I'm based in a regional area, it's very important that access is both face to face and digital. So we're not excluding people. So Australia is a very large country. So being able to provide that safe space that's empowering where others can connect with each other is is something that I'm working towards building. Wow, that's, that, that's amazing. And, and in this, this kind of, 
um, peer-to-peer men- mentoring, I suppose we could we could call it, and support. Again, what you know, what would you be looking for in a in a peer? What would be the characteristics and, and perhaps experiences that they've had? I mean, they definitely have pain, but I wouldn't say that's the connection that is the most important. It's being able to feel comfortable with someone. So maybe you both love going to the gym or going running and you can connect with someone quite quickly when you've got that shared interest. So there's that overlap. And then you can talk about pain and you can share your journey and what you've tried. And you're more open to listening to that person because they've lived through it. It's more authentic. So I think matching people... And that's something I definitely want to explore and see how others do it. But, yeah, it's going to come down to feeling like you can be vulnerable and you can connect to each other and that is that safe space. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you use the word matching. I mean, it's like a sort of a dating. I mean, I guess dating algorithms there, ones that work, if they work, I don't know. I don't know much about that. <laughs> um, could be could be useful. I guess there's always going to be trial and error. Be like when you go and see a new therapist or, or clinician. Yep. You know that it's relation. Yeah, that relationship is so important. It is, and I mean, you can never curate the perfect experience where you get twenty. You know, we'll say matches. But if you get one, that could change someone's life because they've met someone that supports them that is willing to listen and understands from day one. There's no trying to prove it. We just, you know, or trying to get that empathy. We have it because we've lived it. So I think that's incredibly powerful. And, you know, that can make such a difference. But for me, stories are very much at the core of everything. And like we talked about before, that validation. And I started sharing my story only last year because I felt so much shame. I used to hide it. And sharing my story had a really profound impact because I didn't feel so alone. You know, it's one in five globally, but oddly I was like, oh, I'm the only one that's got these challenges. There's so many people with similar challenges, not exactly the same, but they're similar. Um, So, and I could see how I could connect with others so quickly and easily and they trusted me and they were inspired by what I'd achieved and gone through. And I was like, wow, I need to, you know, create something like this for others Um, because for me, the stories are so important. That data is so powerful and they're not being collected at all. Mine has never been recorded or, you know, submitted in any way. So the vision is from the member level is that you can be validated. You can share what you feel comfortable with. You can connect with others. But on that strategic level, it's how can we build innovation? How can we influence policy to actually make big changes to the future of this condition which you know in australia it's the third most prevalent it's a massive issue yeah i mean it's interesting you you know this targeting the the policy level um i think you know we were speaking before um about you know the the funders from wherever they are coming from funding you know certain treatments uh, investigations, ongoing investigations, more investigations, more surgeries, they'll, they'll fund those things, but yet they won't fund any kind of rehabilitation. I mean that in its widest sense, or, or if they do, it's it's really quite limited. And then they want, you know, uh, definite outcomes to, to, to cover it. Um, whereas the same, that same rigorousness, you know, because you don't know the outcomes of what a surgery is going to be, despite what the data says before. You never, you never know. You don't. No one has crystal ball. No. Um, so, um, so the the kind of the, the cheaper and and much more useful. I mean, obviously, there's a place for surgery if needed. I'm there not saying there isn't, okay. and there's a place for medication and da da da. But there's definitely a place for rehabilitation. I mean, you, how can people? live without having the skills of living or learning about all these different things they can do it makes no sense and i mean to change the health system is a big <laughs> mammoth task and for me the power and balance to shift that is to start empowering at the grassroots level at the people that live with it that are the experts they're the living experts in it um, they live with it every day and there's a lot of amazing knowledge there so there's a huge gap between them and then the practitioners. So how can we bridge that gap? How can we make it that the outcomes are better for people? We empower them. We teach them how to be assertive. 
how to go into appointments and have the ability to say no to treatments that they might not think are appropriate and explore other options so they don't feel so alone and disempowered. So there's a huge potential and that's what I envisage doing is really empowering people to ha- to know that they've got options um, so that they can move forward. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, again, it's common, isn't it, that, that people, they don't, they don't want that particular treatment, particularly if it's invasive or whatever, but feel that if they don't, they're not going along with what they're being told to do. It's always being told to do things yes. and then they might get dismissed or, oh, well, if you're not going to do what I suggest, then, then you're discharged, basically. And it's kind of the manner in which it's done um, as well, just leaving that person feeling again very, very alone. So this connection and other people's stories, which you've really emphasised, then is so important. Yeah, and having that place, you might have a bad experience with a practitioner. So who do you talk to? You come back to this community that is a safe space and they can give you tips or a recommendation of someone that is a great practitioner. At the moment, it's Google, you know, time, luck and money. And I just really want to eliminate all of that (laughs) because it's, you know, it's just horrific to be diagnosed with something or live through it and sit at home completely alone going, I don't know what to do. I'm going to Google and go on Facebook. It's very dangerous. So providing that free evidence-based, really easy to understand information that's, you know, backed by science and then taking it a step further and going, well, here are the practitioners, here are the coaches. Here's, you know, a great program that's been vetted that we know is authentic and has good outcomes um, you know, providing that centralised space for people to go so they're not lost and confused anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this would really be, you know, a go-to resource for, for people and which, which includes that, that kind of human contact. Um, how, how would you make sure that the, the human contact and the discussions, the forums, if we want to call them that, remain focused on being positive i don't mean positive thinking like everything's great when it isn't i mean just positive in as much as right these are the types of things you want to achieve these are the types of things you can try and, and work with how, how are you going to try and monitor that because that's tricky i imagine it is it's really tricky and it's one of the big challenges i mean you look at facebook and for a while it was fantastic but when i go on there now it's very negative and that negativity sort of spirals and everyone feeds off each other so I don't have an answer to that yet but very open to learning ways and i think building in small groups that's you know and then go from there and then branching out and matching people and just having all those safety mechanisms in place you know reporting um yeah, to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. It's pretty hard to prevent because you're right. You you want people to be able to express their challenges and that is negative, I guess. Um, but you don't want to say, oh, you can only, you know, no complaining, it's all positive because then people don't feel validated. So it's this very tricky balance, but I think that comes down to the experience of how you go in there. Like it's not completely anonymous. You just write whatever you want. Um, so there's there's steps to go through to authenticate who you are. And the yeah. storytelling is one way to do that because that is really valuable data. And we'll create ways, probably using AI and data labelling, to ensure that you don't have people going in there just to get through so they can come into the platform. So they're going to be able to pick up when it's, you know, not, not someone that even has pain, for example. So, yeah, just embedding those systems to ensure. But that, that's a really tricky one. It's going to be interesting to see what other countries do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a, a problem for, uh, for for all forums because, you know, a complaint is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, to complain. You know, you complain about something if it's not right and there's something you can do about it. But, but kind of incessant, I suppose, more moaning um, with, with no real purpose of, of, of kind of looking at ways of making things better. I guess that's the bit that's trickier. But even that, you know, you can understand and as a Brit, we moan. We moan about all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's, you know. I mean, a complaint's uh, an opportunity to improve. I mean, if no one on this platform's complaining, there's an issue because nothing ever runs perfectly. They So if people don't feel safe and empowered to speak up, that's a major issue. I'd want complaints coming in or feedback, we could say, constructive criticism, because it's all about improving all the time. Like you never get to a point where it's like, this is an amazing platform, it's running smoothly. That there is no end point. It's just always evolving, always looking at ways to make the experience better for people. 
Yeah, and I guess that, what you just captured there, is the same for someone's pain and that for their, their life. This is a root of mastery. Um, there's, there's no end point. There's just working out what works for you that delivers, you know, the best life that you, considering your circumstances and the conditions, in this moment, because this is the only moment, and then that might that's going to change. So you might need other skills and practices down down the line. So again, this kind of openness and, and rolling acceptance of of this is how things are for me, um, and and this is going to be my way. And I guess your 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 system will support that. And it's helpful for pain, but it's actually helpful for everything. So a lot of these skills, I just wish. I'd learned a long time ago because I, I just, yeah, I think about it and I go, well, these aren't even specific to chronic pain. Like I'm looking at them and I'm trying them because this is my major challenge, but they help with everything. They help with other health challenges, you know, preventing burnout, having better work-life balance, having hobbies, great relationships. It's just been fascinating to reflect on that, to go, well, all, you know, and the potential to help so many people is there. Yeah. And, um, you know, your, your ability to, to draw on so many different fields and to, and to look more broadly at it rather than zooming in on, on pain. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me, they say, you, you actually a physio. Um, someone asked me that in a training session. She said, can I just stop for a minute? Are you, you are a physio, aren't you? I said, well, yeah, that's one of the, yeah, I suppose I've got a ticket for that. Yeah, I am. But, um, but going broad just, uh, just offers so much in way of possibility and, and opportunity. And it's trying to keep that openness, that, that beginner's mind and help people to cultivate that, to water those, those seeds, just as, as you have. Um, and, and I guess for some people it's, you know, they just, they luck out in a way on, on that. But we don't want it to be based on that. We want it to be based on no. This is this is the way. This is the way it can be done. Yes, there's so many opportunities to help people to improve their quality of life, and a lot of them are quite simple. Like we spoke about, it might be that coffee ritual, it might be meditation, and doing that consistently can make a remarkable difference. It doesn't involve you know lengthy programs or years of therapy and thousands of dollars it can be the really simple day-to-day changes and habits that make a profound difference yeah wow that's a that's a really powerful message what what would you say is and i know this will probably evolve because i know you think about stuff a lot you know what's your picture of success (laughs) that's a hard one For me, a lot of it's about legacy, like being proud of the difference I've made. And if that's to one person, that's enough. And through this process, I did interviews to sort of explore what people's challenges are. And at the end, they would thank me. And I thought, even if I stop right now, I've already got a legacy. I've helped that person because I've listened. I hardly spoke. I just listened to their story and their experiences. And I've offered that to them. So I don't need to be, you know, a huge company helping millions of people to be successful because I already am now. And I'm also really proud of sharing my story. It's been really difficult to be that vulnerable from going from someone that never spoke about it to being in the paper, the national paper and talking to you. So that to me is success. Um, and just enjoying each day. Like I said at the start, taking the dog to the beach, just you know, looking at the ocean, just so beautiful today in the sky and being content with that. I think for a long time I chased certain things like my degrees and I'd get them and nothing changed because I wanted something else. Like it never really ends, this list. It's like Santa's list. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's so long. So it's, yeah, being able to pre- appreciate those little things and each day because you just don't know what's going to happen. And for me, everything changed. Every single thing in my my life changed. So now I just appreciate what I've got here. Like you said, the present moment. Yeah. Wow. Oh, look, it's uh, it's an incredible story and an ongoing one because you're doing amazing work and and taking your experiences to to help others. And that's that's an amazing thing to do. Um, where where can people 
follow you, find out about what you're up to? Absolutely. So I use Instagram a lot. I love your Insta account, by the way. Um, so it's Jaspen, J-A-S-P-E-N Health. Or there's the website, which is www.jaspenhealth.com. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll put those on the um, on the, the the notes page so people can can come and have a look. And and you you should listeners go and go and have a look because this is this is brilliant and ongoing. And 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 hope you know hopefully we're gonna you know carry on chatting and and do some stuff so we can we can document all of that and and have future chats. But um, thanks so much for for coming on. Um, it's been brilliant and fascinating. And, and I say it's amazing work you're doing. Thank you, Richmond. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's great to chat. Likewise. Take care. Bye.